is the Evangelists Conference podcast. The Evangelists Conference is hosted by J. John, Killy John, and Andy Economides for those called to do the work of the evangelist. To find out more and to book your place for next year, visit evangelistsconference.com. Just before I dive in, I want to mention three things that I, I hope may serve you. Uh, you may have seen uh, in the bio that uh, I have the privilege of being the senior leader uh, of a church called Zeo Church, Z-E-O Church. Zeo is the Greek word from the New Testament, and it means passion. And not just any passion, but like literally burning with passion, on fire with passion. And uh, a few years ago for, for our church, and then we turned it into a book, I did 42 short daily devotions on Romans 12, which looks at what it means to live a zeo life, a passionate life. Uh, That's available in the bookstore, a great uh, thing maybe at the start of your year. It's good for new Christians. We give it to new Christians as well. Uh, 42 discipleship tips to journey, but digging into Romans 12. It's just a mere five pounds, special deal, two for 10. And uh, so... uh, so do, uh, do feel free to check that out. Uh, one of my other passions in life is, uh, is investing in and cheering on leaders, particularly if you're a leader here and probably we're all leaders in different ways. And we know that in these last two or three years, particularly, it's been very tough on leaders. And uh, both myself and my wife, Amy, we're just passionate about loving on leaders, cheering on leaders, speaking life over leaders. And a couple of years ago, I, I launched this six-session I really call it, I think I call it a retreat now for leaders to be able to come online with some other leaders and, uh, and just have a bit of a reset and a recharge and think afresh about what it means to be a follower of Jesus who is a leader of people. Uh, you'll see on your tables, Reboot Your Leadership, there's a sheet that tells you a bit about it. If you're interested in being part of that, uh, the next uh, program of that runs uh, in February. And so love you to join and be a part of that or spread the word to others that you may know. Also, just a final thing to say, uh, a week on Friday, every term, uh, I I seek to gather online with some communicators to to see how we could do better with our communication. And so uh, there's there's an online free seminar conversation that I'm running next Friday lunchtime from 12 till 2. Again, if you look at that website, which is stretch-your-life.com, but do forward slash speaking instead of uh, forward... Splash, uh, splash, forward slash reboot, then you'll find all the information about that and we can learn uh, together. But for now, why don't you, that's enough about me, why don't you turn to the person next to you and just say to them, if it wasn't for you, I'd be the best looking person in this room this morning. Okay. Now, some of you are, need to confess that you've probably told an untruth, but um, I remember hearing a story of a, a, a pastor who was preaching in a church, and, uh, and he was going on for a long time, a long time. And that would have been okay if he was good, but he wasn't good. I'm sure this never happens in any of your churches. But anyway, this preacher, he's preaching, he's preached for a long time, he's monotone, he's dull, he's boring, and... And there's a teenage boy sitting halfway down the congregation and he just can't take it anymore. 
So, so he gets up and he turns around and he starts to walk to the big doors to get out of the building. The minister is really upset by this. And so he closes his big black Bible with a thud and he calls out to the, to the lad. He says, young man, where do you think you're going? Teenager stops in his tracks, turns around to the pastor, looks up at him and only a way a teenager can says, I'm going to get my hair cut. <laughs> this infuriates the minister. So he says, why didn't you get your hair cut before this meeting started? And the kid goes, it didn't need cutting before this service started. <laughs> so I hope that no one will feel the need for a haircut today. I was doing a school assembly uh, a few years ago and, <laughs> and, uh, and I literally told that story right at the start and the headmistress of the school suddenly got up and she left the room. Everyone thinking like, does she need a haircut? Apparently she was about to have a coughing fit, but, uh, but there we go. More positively, why don't you turn to the person next to you and say to them this, and you've got to say it like this, okay? You are on fire right now. You are on fire. So there's, um, there's a story told, many of you have heard this, of the 18th century evangelist John Wesley. He was asked, once asked by a journalist, like, how do you gather so many people when you speak? And he apparently replied, I set myself on fire and people come to watch me burn. I, I want to ask you this morning, how on fire are you today? How on fire are you? Like, Noel and I didn't know what we were going to be doing today, but I just like, it feels as we shouldn't be surprised how God is just flowing and leading us. And so I guess in a sense, I'm picking up from where he ended uh, today. How on fire are you? What does that even mean? What does that even look like? Again, there are numerous times we've been reminded in the time that we've already been together that maybe... For some of us right now, faith and life does not feel on fire. Perhaps you feel like you are flickering, that you are that smoking flax. Like there's, there's barely enough there. But, but if that is you today, I have really wonderful news. Because the scripture says of Jesus that a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Jesus is not here, friends, to blow you out, to blow you out today. He's here to build you up. And he's here to fire you up so that you will be ready to go again as you leave this place. My prayer this morning is that wherever you're at, that the flicker will become a flame and the flame will become a furnace. That you will be on fire, that you will have some zeal in you where your heart and soul will burn with divine faith and hope and love as you leave this place. I'm praying that you will be fired up and ready to go. Fired up and ready to go into your unique, personal, crazy kingdom adventure that God has for you. Stay in your lane. Run your race. Be who God created you to be.
reject comparison. And so we're going to look at a really famous story of someone who was fired up and ready to go. And so if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn with me to 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. And as we come into this story, we know that Israel has been experiencing some divine judgment through a three-year famine. But God has just spoken to the prophet Elijah and basically said to Elijah, this famine is coming to an end. And the ending of this famine and the coming rain mean that there's a face-off moment that's going to be needed between King Ahab and the false prophets. And so I'm going to read this. Uh, brilliant story that we'll know so well from verse 6 of 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and you've followed the Baals. But now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces. Put it on the wood and not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. And then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls, prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder, slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And then they came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the ball into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. 
At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Lord, speak to us through your word, we pray. If you stop to think about it, we have all collectively navigated and still navigating seven of the craziest years probably in our lifetime in terms of things that have happened, extraordinary events that have been world-changing and life-impacting. I mean, you think about it, we've got Brexit, the COVID pandemic, the death of George Floyd, the, the war in Ukraine, the escalating cost of living crisis, and now the conflict in the Middle East, not to mention the tsunami, literally the tsunami of, of contradictory and confusing ideologies that are saturating our social media feeds. It feels to me that the world is more anxious and more angry and more divided and more distracted than it has ever been in my life. And that is the context into which we are seeking to bring the good news, to present this faith, this lordship of Jesus, except no substitutes. And, and of course, for many in our culture, a faith that claims your identity and purpose is not rooted in whoever you decide you want to be, well, that faith sounds restrictive, curtailing your personal freedoms. Like, why would you choose that? And so it's no wonder at times that the church, and we are the church, can feel overwhelmed, under-resourced for the challenge that we face and the change that we long for. I mean, how can our single, small voice speak over the clamour of this culture? It feels like we're outnumbered and outgunned. The fake news gods seem to have won. That's the challenge that Elijah's facing in 1 Kings 18. And yet in this moment, Elijah steps out of the shadows with this bold on fire resolve, not on my watch. Not on my watch. I've got to do something about this. Now, because Elijah could easily have felt overwhelmed and under-resourced, outnumbered and outgunned. He could easily have felt that. He should have felt that. Because humanly speaking, he is facing insurmountable odds. He's facing a king, Ahab, who could have killed him just on sight. 450 prophets of Baal. I mean, those aren't great odds, are they? 450 to one. And that the reality is pretty much the whole of Israel want him dead. Like he's not high in the popularity stakes. Yet despite this, something has happened to Elijah. Because friends, I want to suggest that the real fire in this story the first fire in this story is not what later comes on the sacrifice. The real fire in this story is the fire in the heart and soul and belly and life of Elijah. 
That's the real fire that propels him into this situation. He is burning with the fire of faith, the fire of hope and the fire of love. He is fired up and ready to go. He cannot help himself. It's it's like Paul says later, hundreds of years uh, later, woe is me if I don't speak and preach the gospel. Like he cannot help himself because this fire is burning so much within him. This fire of faith, hope and love. And, And that fire of faith and that fire of hope and that fire of love, it provokes a response. The fire of faith, first of all, which I would suggest fuels daily decisions. The fire of faith, which fuels daily decisions. Elijah, as we know, he has this unshakable, immovable conviction that not only is God real, but there is one true personal God. There is one Saviour, there is one Lord, and He alone is worth following. He is worth devoting your life to put your faith and your trust in Him. Accept no substitutes, nothing else will satisfy. And he's so captivated by his faith in this God. And what God has done and the evidence of that that he's seen in his life, that he is burning with this bold faith and this bold faith will propel him into this moment that he is willing to stand up and stand out in a culture that wants him to shut up and sit down, but he just won't do it. But he won't do it. Because Elijah doesn't just know about God, he knows God. He knows God experientially, personally, he knows him. He knows him. I'm going to invite you today to commit your life to Jesus, to put your faith in him again today. As the fire of faith rekindles in your life, that you would realise afresh and know even more how amazing this God is, how worthy of your faith and trust he is. Back in 2008, I... um, when I was working for Urban Saints, I, I went over to the States to, uh, to see some of the work of Young Life. Any of you guys heard of Young Life? Brilliant organisation. And I went to, to one of their summer camps, which was about two hours west of New York. And, uh, and as you'd expect, it was like the Disney world of Christian camps. Like, it was amazing. It was absolutely, it was absolutely brilliant. The only thing that was not brilliant is that they had this really impressive but demonic high ropes course. Uh, I, I just kind of have this theory that like literally high ropes course would devised by demon possessed people. Because why would anyone want to do that? Does anyone here like high ropes courses? Of course, Simon does. That would be obvious. But probably not too high, are they, Simon, really? But, uh, but I, I, I literally, I think if God had want me up in a tree, he would have made me a bird. So I, 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 I never used to have a fear of heights, but I do. But I, I, it was fine. We were just going to leave it alone. Anyway, the last, the last day that we're there, we're having lunch. And the, the people who were hosting us, there was a team of us. They said, uh, we have wonderful news. And uh, we're all going to go on a high ropes course. We wanted you to have this experience. And... Uh, I did not feel chuffed by this. But I remember that Jesus said, you know, you've got to eat what's put in front of you. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to give it a go. Like, because you've got to learn to face your fears and do it anyway. That's the mantra, isn't it? Face your fears and do it anyway. 
And the way their high ropes course works is basically it was over a ravine. So you started at the top of a ravine, almost like this stage, and you were literally like a foot off the ground, holding on, clipped in, and then it just sheer dropped 70 or 80 feet, and then you went round the course. And, and uh, I will say, superb for your prayer life. <laughs> superb. I was binding, loosing, shikomono hondering. I was asking the Holy Spirit to come. I was asking Jesus to return. I, like, it was good for my prayer life. It was, it was really good. But I hated it. I just felt sick the whole time. And then I realized there was only one way down. There was this platform. And the clue was in the name. It was called the bungee drop. Yeah. And basically what happened is you would sit on this, they would unclip you from what you were on and then they would click you to this bungee and then you would launch off and then you would free fall and, uh, and then you would hope that the rope had you. I did not want to go on the bungee. But like there was nothing I could do. And what made it worse is there was this like seven-year-old girl and she was in front of me. She's having the time of her life, you know, doing all this kind of stuff. This is great, you know. And, and, and then she gets on the bungee platform and she jumps off and she goes, woo! And I'm thinking, I am going to wee. That's the best that's going to happen to me. I'm worried for worse. Literally, I may lose control of everything here. TMI? Okay. So anyway, I come, I sit on the platform. The guy unhooks me. And I, I can't move. I just, I just can't go. I, you know. And uh, he says, you need to go. I said, I can't go. He said, you need to go. He said, um, okay, I'll push you. I turned. I said, I will punch you if you push me. <laughs> punch you and then he pushed me <laughs> I, I felt like I was falling for ages like every single muscle in my body contracted even my belly button went <laughs> my boys were 3,000 miles away I'm sure they heard me scream this guttural scream but then something incredible happened then the rope got me and I was no longer falling. I was flying. And I've got my Superman belt on here. I've always wanted to fly. I've always wanted to fly. It was an amazing moment. This moment, I was kind of soaring through the trees, back and forth. It was incredible. Now, I don't want to do it again, I'm going to be honest. But I learned that you don't get to fly unless you're willing to fall. And you don't discover how strong the rope is if you're not willing to leap out. You don't discover how worthy of your faith and your trust in God is if you're not willing to step out, to jump out and put yourself in that place. And Elijah has, he's had this track record of God saying this, I'm going to do it. And then he finds God and God says this, he's going to do it. And he finds God, this man of faith. He knows it. He doesn't just know about God. He knows God. It reminds me a little bit of the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the early church, you know, sometimes it's called that book is the Acts of the early church or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But another title you could give the book of Acts is the, the Acts of Boldness. Because this word boldness appears throughout the whole of the book of Acts over and over again. And it's two Greek words. Now, the most common Greek word is parasiadzomai. Now, if I've pronounced that wrong blame blue letter Bible. Parasiadzomai. And parasiadzomai is a boldness that basically describes something you're doing. It's a verb. So, so someone is being bold, you know, in, in a particular moment. They're doing acts of boldness. 
But there's another word that's only used a few times, and it's parousia. And parousia is a noun. It's an identity word. It, it, it doesn't mean you're doing bold things. It means you are bold. It's who you are. It stands at the core of your being. And, and what's so wonderful about parousia is it, is it literally means a boldness that comes because of something that you know in the depth of your belly. I know this because I've experienced it. I know it because it's part of my personal reality. That's boldness. Again, it reminds me of that Old Testament word, word yada, pronounced to see, to know, to perceive. But again, it doesn't mean that you know something by intellect. It means you know it by experience. You have personally experienced it for yourself. Like, I know that Belgian chocolate haagen ice cream is the best ice cream on the planet. I know. And I don't know because I studied the ingredients and how ultra-processed it is. <laughs> And I don't know it because I polled lots of people and I sense a sense of peer pressure. Like, I know it because I have tasted and seen that it is good. As Elijah's got parousia, he's got yada. He has this deep conviction like he knows this fire of faith has come through experience, through reality. And, and, I, and I'm praying afresh for that reality for you and I today. That we would know, not here, but here, in our belly, in our heart, in our soul, that we would know him. Because when we know him, that rekindles fire. You can't lack faith when you've experienced and know how good this God is. I'm praying that the fire of faith will be stoked in us, that we will know him, experience him, not as some disconnected, distant, disinterested deity, but that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the fairest of 10,000 in the bright and morning star. He is the way and the truth and the life and the resurrection and the life. He is the very bread of life. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and the prince of peace. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the creator of the world, the savior of the world, and he's the restorer of the world. He is the good shepherd who has laid down his life for the sheep. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb who was slain even before the beginning of time. He is the light of the world. He's my deliverer, redeemer, prophet, and great high priest. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is my rock, my fortress, my strong tower, my hiding place, my refuge. With him, I can hide under the shadow of his wing. But when I wait and hope on him, I can soar on the wings of eagles. I can run and not grow weary. I can walk and I will not faint. His commitment to me is unquestionable. His joy is unspeakable. His peace is unbelievable. His power is unimaginable. His wisdom is unthinkable. His grace is unreasonable. His mercy is unfathomable. His justice is inescapable. His generosity is immeasurable. His holiness is unmatchable. His hope is unshakable. His faithfulness is unbreakable and his love is unquenchable. This is your God. This, this, is, this is not a list of words that come from Scripture. This is a reality from the very heart and nature of God. May you know Him as that. 
Because when you know him, the fire of faith will kindle in you into a flame, which is why what this fire of faith does, and don't worry, like Mark, I'm spending most of the time on this first point, chill. When, when, you, when you feel that fire of faith, you want others to experience it too. You, you, you long for that, which is why in verse 21, Elijah says to the crowd, why are you limping and hobbling and wavering and sitting on the fence? It's like, it's not gonna get you anywhere. It's uncomfortable. This is a moment, like Mark reminded us, to decide to decide. And if we really believe in this God and we've experienced him, then we will not shy away from creating confrontation moments with people when we say to them, this is your moment to decide. To decide. And to be clear, following Jesus is not about a decision. It's not a decision. To be a follower of Jesus is about decisions. Every single day making a decision. The fire of faith fuels daily decisions. You know, I used to remember like, you've all had it, it happens in our church, you know, where you do the altar call at the end and, and, and Bob comes up like every single time. Do you know what I mean? Bob would come up, every time you do it, Bob comes up, Bob comes up, or Liam comes up, or Joan comes up. And you, you'd wanna speak to them and say, hey, you don't need to come up. I think they had it right. I think they had it right. I think they had this thing of, you know what? I'm going again. I'm deciding again to follow Jesus. We should be waking up every single day ourselves and say, God, I'm in again. I'm deciding again to follow Jesus. There are daily decisions and, and there are, those decisions are by moments because you know that in your own walk with God, every single moment of your day, there are confrontation moments in your own walk of faith where you have to decide, are you putting your faith in this God or faith in yourself? The fire of faith fuels confrontation moments in our own lives, but we need to call other people into those daily decisions. Elijah burned with the fire of faith, but he also burned with the fire of hope. In fact, it was the fire of faith that fired up hope in his life. And what does, what does hope do? Hope fuels divine dares. The fire of hope fuels divine dares. Because of this deep conviction that Elijah had about who God is and what God could do, like he just had this audacious belief that God could do anything, absolutely anything, that history does not determine destiny, that God can rewrite the story, that with this God, the impossible becomes possible, the supernatural, the miraculous. In fact, he is so bursting in this story with divine hope that he makes it as hard as possible for God to move. He literally does. He couldn't have made it any harder. And we need to remember this showdown is really important. Because it's about to rain. And Elijah knows that Baal is the weather god. He's the storm god. And so the prophets of Baal and Ahab are going to be thinking, oh, three years we've been praying, Baal has finally come through for us. And so we need some fire from heaven before we get rain from heaven so that they know there's just one true God. And we've read the story. The prophets of Baal go first. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Despite six hours of shouting and dancing and chanting and hopping and begging and cutting, the writer says, verse 29, there was no sound, no reply, no response. And then we're told around three o'clock in the afternoon, God loves doing things at three o'clock in the afternoon. 
At three o'clock in the afternoon, Elijah prepares the sacrifice and he takes 12 stones that are symbolizing God's long-for reunification of his people. And then he takes 12 jars, same again, number again, he drenches it. And he's so full of hope, so burning with hope, that he doesn't do what those other prophets did. He, He literally just prays. There's no sense he's even shouting, God, I've done me, now you do you. I've done me. I've brought. I've brought. I've done my bit. Now you do your bit, because Elijah understood that when he brought the little that he had to offer, and coupled it with the whole of God, that anything was possible. Divine dares. I want to ask you though: Do you think Elijah knew with absolute certainty what was about to happen? No. I mean, yeah, God had commanded it, but this was still a place of faith. Could the fires of hope have been disappointed? Yes, they could have been. Like, we love this story because of what happened next, but what if that didn't happen? What if he'd have prayed and everything, and then he is equally met by silence? We've all had those silence moments. What if it turned into a no-score draw? J. John often speaks about the truth that we live between mystery and miracle. Because we do, don't we? We do, don't we? But it seems to me that Elijah has this resolve. I would rather risk everything to get something than risk nothing to get nothing. He's he's willing to do that. And so I want to ask you, friends, when's the last time you put yourself in that place? When's that last time you put yourself in that place of divine dare where you're saying, God, if you don't come through in this, I'm in trouble. When's the last time? Lean forward a sec. Lean forward, lean forward. Let, let, me, let me tell you, we are always in that place. The truth is that. We are always utterly dependent on him. Always. In him you live and move and breathe and have your being. Every morning I get up and I say, Jesus, you're right. Without you I can do nothing. But with you everything is possible. We are always dependent on him, but a divine dare goes beyond dependency. A divine dare says, come on God, let us get out of the boat and see if we can walk on water. A divine dare in Acts chapter 3 reaches out to a man who's crippled, holds him by the hand and yanks him to his feet saying, I don't have any money, but I'm going to give you what I've got in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. That's a divine dare and expecting that something might happen. Someone once said, part of our problem is this, we're accustomed only to do things for God that are not impossible. If God doesn't show up and help us, we can still succeed. Because our view of God is so small and our expectation on ourselves is so great, we risk little. Because our view and expectation of God is so small and on ourselves is so great, we risk little. Come with me to 2010, Easter. I'm with 150 young people from the UK in Mexico for the first time. We're building houses. And uh, building houses by day and in the evening, there's a um, kind of fairly standard youth meeting. And uh, I'm organising the spiritual programme. And on the third night, on the Sunday night, Pastor Juan, one of the Mexican pastors, is preaching. 
And uh, he doesn't speak any English, so he's got an interpreter. And I have a little chat with him. And he says, like, how long shall I speak for? And he was like, oh, about 20 minutes. And he was like, okay, you know, great. And so we have a little bit of worship. We're just in a, in a, a small marquee packed in with clanky metal chairs, a noisy generator in the back that we can hear when the music's off. No stage, nothing. And uh, Pastor One gets up and he reads a bit of scripture and then he preaches. And I, I, can't, I couldn't tell you, I can't remember what he said, but all I remember when I was sitting there at the time was, this guy cannot communicate to young people. I was like, this is not good. This is not good. You know, and I, despite the interpretation, it wasn't that. You know, he doesn't know the stories. He doesn't know the creative process. He doesn't know, you know, cultural contextualizing and all this kind of stuff, you know. Issues me. And uh, he, you know, he, you know, and anyway, he, he finishes after about 10 minutes. So I was like, oh, well, thank you, Jesus, for that. And then, um, and then he says, everyone bow your heads. Remember, this is all being interpreted. And then he says, okay, so if there is anyone here who wants to give your life to Jesus, just put your hand up now. And I just kept my eyes closed. I said, well, you know, we can just quickly move on. This won't take long. And then, um, and then he said, would those of you who've just put your hands up, would you now stand? And I heard the clatter of chairs. And then he said, would those of you who stand, would you now come forward and we will pray for you? And I opened my eyes to 25 young people coming forward, including five from my own group, many of whom were in tears. And the Holy Spirit said to me, oh, you thought it was you, did you? You thought it was your great communication. You thought it was about you being brilliant and, and, and engaging. You thought it was all about you. The hope of this generation, Matt, is not in you. It's in me. It's in me. And, and if you would just bring the little that you've got. That's why I love Pastor One. Because, he, because his hope was in God, not in himself. And it didn't matter whether he was as good as this person or that person. He brought the five loaves and two fish of, of his life. And he trusted in his faith and his hope in this God is that God would take it and then do something incredible. And he did. The next year, I'm back in Mexico. Pastor One's up for preaching Sunday. I'm bringing it on. Bring it on, Pastor One. Come on, I'm ready. Like what you could read the yellow pages, people are going to get saved. There's something on your anointing. <laughs> Pastor One says to me, okay, he says, uh, before I speak, remember this is all interpreted, he says, before I speak, um, I've got some young people from my group and they're going to do a little drama. I was like, oh, great. What could go wrong? And this drama, basically, it was, it was a mime that they were doing to a rap track that was all in Spanish, that was held with a microphone held up to a phone, played through a tinny, you know, with a generator in the background. So we had no idea what was going on in the song, you know, just this... You know. And... Um, and this was the mime. This was the mime. The mime was, there were two lads. I mean, all these guys were about 13 years old. They were clearly friends. They were hanging out together. They got in involved in some bad stuff. But then one met, you know, was introduced to Jesus and we kind of see him praying and the other guy's not interested in it at all. And then in the sketch, this is true, like they are all killed in a drive-by shooting. There's, there's literally like, and, like, and then they go down. And we, and we watch... And then, 
And then obviously, then they are kind of, they're resurrected and, and one, there's a clearly, and there's angels coming and, they're, they're, and, they, and they go to heaven and the other one, the other one who didn't make the decision, some young people come out and he's like this and he clearly goes to hell and they are beating him with rods. <laughs> beating him with rods. He's like this, he's like. <laughs> the problem is there is a minute left of the song to play. So for one long minute, we're watching beating, beating, beating. I was like, well, at least Pastor One's going to come and preach. So Pastor One gets up and he goes, so if anyone here wants to give their life to Christ... I'm going to invite you to come down the middle and turn around and face everybody. And 20 young people came out of their seats and moved to the front, including two boys who were 17 years old that weren't from my group, another group. And on the very first night when we were in San Diego, the manager knocked on my door at 2.30 in the morning and said, if you don't sort those boys out, I'm going to call the police. And these big rugby 17-year-old giants are walking down the centre aisle broken in tears as they come to Jesus. It, the hope of people, is not on you. It's not on you. You bring yourself the fire of hope, fuels, fuels divine dares, just this willing to make yourself look stupid, put yourself out there, don't worry about you. You be you. See what God will do. That's all you can be. The fire of faith fuels daily decisions. The fire of hope fuels divine dares. And finally, the fire of love fuels devoted disciples. In verse 37, Elijah reveals the real motivation behind this whole scene. What's really going on? He says, answer me, Lord, answer me, so that the people will know, Hebrew word yada, know through experience, that you, Lord, are God, and their hearts will turn back to you again. That's the goal of this. What God is longing for is that the hearts of the people would turn back to him. The whole motivation behind this is love. God's love for people, rebellious people, people who despise him, people who are against him, love. And that love propels Elijah that he's willing to risk everyone because he knows how much God loves people and he's willing to risk everything for it. He wants them to be devoted to this amazing God of faith and hope like he is. He's not after hands in the air. He's after hearts laid bare. He's after devotion. That these people would follow. It's, it's not just after a decision. He's after a disciple. A disciple of Jesus. And what's interesting, if we look at the life of Elijah, this is Elijah's only big crowd moment, to be honest. All the other encounters we really see with Elijah, he's dealing with people in small groups or one-on-one. Zarephath, Obadiah, his servant, Ahab, Jezebel, Ahaziah, the school of the prophets, and of course, eventually, Elisha. Because Elijah burned with a fire of love, then he had this philosophy, which I want to encourage all of us to have, is that I'm discipling everybody. I'm discipling everybody. 
that every moment is a discipleship moment. Every conversation is a moment to try to draw people into faith with Jesus. It's all about that, introducing them that they would know him and become like him and and help others do the same. Like we break this false dichotomy of evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism is a part of discipleship, but it's all discipleship. It's all discipleship. It's like the the bit at the start, but it's all discipleship. And so when I'm sitting in my barber's chair with Brandon and we're chatting about life and faith and sometimes overtly and sometimes covertly, I'm discipling him. I'm drawing him into into the way of Jesus. When when Paul McGee is speaking in places around the country or around the world about how how to think about their well-being and their health and maybe wider things like that. He's discipling them in the way of Jesus because all truth is God's truth. And whether we're doing it covertly or overtly, I wonder how it would change the way we think at every moment when we're being served coffee, when we're talking to the lady as she checks our room number, every single moment we see we, are, we want to disciple this person. We want to invest in them because we love them. We want to see them with the eyes of Jesus. We want to feel what he feels for them because that's what we're committed to. Because think about it, like when did, when did Jesus' disciples become Christians? Like when? When was that moment? Because when they first chose to follow him, it wasn't like they knew who he was. They knew that he was a rabbi and a very special rabbi, but they had no idea what he was. They, they weren't even sure after three years of hanging out with him. But Jesus comes alongside them Like Elijah comes alongside these people and he pours in this agape love, this sacrificial, other-centered love, this love that gives and expects nothing in return. This love that pours out, this love that's willing to be disrupted, interrupted. Henri Nouwen tells the story of like when he used to prepare books and sermons and people would come and see him and and, and he used to be infuriated by all these interruptions and, and one day he prayed and said, God, would you stop people disrupting me? And he felt the Holy Spirit say, those disruptions are your ministry. How disruptable is your life? How disruptable is your life? The fire of faith fuels devoted disciples. We commit to disciple everybody. The fire of faith fuels daily decisions. The fire of hope fuels Divine dares, the fire of love fuels devoted disciples. We're discipling everyone. How can your small voice speak against the clamor of the culture? Can your small voice speak over the clamor of this culture? Yes! Sorry, 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 sorry. Can your small voice speak over the clamour of this culture? Yes! Not because of you, but because God works with you. That the fire of faith and who He is and what He's done can come alive again. I'm speaking to someone's soul here this morning and I'm saying, Come on, wake up, fire up again. That the fire of hope would help you to dream again, to believe again. Nothing is impossible.
your five loaves, heaven almighty. I'm speaking to someone's soul this morning. Come on, wake up, fire up. That the fire of love will burn afresh, particularly with those people who drive you nuts. Forgive them and love them in every moment. We are Acts 2 people. Neil reminded us, Noel reminded us this of yesterday, fire's, fire's fallen every day. And what this means is we are part of the new exodus, the new exodus, leaving, leading people out of the slavery of Egypt into God's promised land. And what does that mean? That means that now, friends, it means that you are the burning bush. You are the burning bush and that when you're burning with fire, then people's attraction, like what's going on with you? And they come close to you and you can point them to Jesus. You are the burning bush, that flames that never go out. You, you are the pillar of fire. Your life can be a pillar of fire, guiding and leading and directing people to God's best. You can be the burning incense in the table, in the temple, the fragrance, the fragrance, the sweet fragrance of heaven, wherever you are, your life on fire. The fire of faith, fire of hope, fire of love. You've been listening to the Evangelists Conference podcast. Visit evangelistsconference.com to find out more.